The book of Ecclesiastes goes on to tell us, starting in chapter 5, in verse 1, it says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord to us in part this morning. I've been encouraged starting at about a month ago before we undertook uh, the preaching from Ecclesiastes. How many of you were excited to hear from this book? How what you knew of this book only was going to encourage you and, and lift you up because the book of Ecclesiastes kind of sets things on the table like we see them. You know, there is hardship in the world. Our efforts don't seem as, as powerful as we may want them. But over the last couple of weeks, I've been hearing from more and more of you actually how, how daunting of a book Ecclesiastes is, how, how it's easy to say, man, I really want to hear from Ecclesiastes. And then when you read it in and out, you go, actually, I don't want to hear about that stuff in my life. I'm happy with just singing the songs and knowing that we're seven months away from Christmas and being pretty satisfied with that. So we come to a text this morning that I believe helps us almost at a midpoint, almost at a midsection of, of Ecclesiastes, that in the midst of these highs and lows, in the midst of looking at things that are supposed to deliver us from the low and to encourage us to look high, of what we should do now. So in part, this sermon will uh, be broken into two major pieces. One will tell us how we're supposed to be careful in the way that we live. And then second, how we're supposed to be content and not only the way that we live, but also in what God gives us. Starting a new unit and starting on its own, we, we encounter a, another hinge point of fearing God within the scope of the book and how that should help shape how we worship and how we live. So if you come at this text maybe distraught or down or frustrated because there's been a lot of negative within this book, even though it's all true, this is a great text for us to hear next. So I want to encourage you to listen to the text. And in first, I want to encourage you not only to listen to the text, but also to see firstly that we need to be careful and worship God with reverence. So to kind of tip you off to a little bit of the structure of this first part, the verses that I read one through seven, there's a little bit of parallel going on with what the author is intending us to see. He's given us a positive and a negative and a positive and a negative in order to, to show us what we ought to do. We ought to worship God with reverence. And he does this in a couple of ways, giving us some imperatives. So, so first, we should be careful to listen. In worshiping God, we should be careful to listen. It says in the first verse, 
to guard our steps. Now, when we think about listening, we are reminded that that when we come into a room, we should make it a purpose to actually listen to what God has to say about himself rather than what we would want to say for ourselves or rather what we would want God to say to us. But let him setting the agenda. We're reminded of Exodus chapter 3 and verse 5 where the Lord is speaking to Moses and he says, Do not come near. Take your sandals off. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Oftentimes there's a temptation in our minds to, to feel maybe too casual when we come to worship. Now, church ought to be a, a safe place. It should be fun. Uh, you know, it should be a place where you like being. But are you too careless when you walk in and gather with other people to hear what God says? Are you, are you too careless in wanting to hear whatever you want to hear rather than the agenda that God has before you? The reason that we should guard our steps, he says, is because we are to draw near to listen or that drawing near to listen is better than sacrifices offered by fools. Now, the context of just that passage is these people who the, the written word is going towards might have been tempted to go into the temple and just do things that believers were to do at that time. Just offer a sacrifice, you do your thing, and then you leave. You know, like the bad dad who swoops in, gives the kid a birthday present, and then goes back to the office. He did what he's supposed to do, but did he enjoy what he was supposed to enjoy? The starting point of understanding God's ways And what he's giving to his people is always initially by listening to what God is actually saying. This this cries out what we would normally read earlier from Deuteronomy where the, the Lord through a prophet is speaking to his people and he says, Hear, O Israel. And then he speaks. Or when Jesus starts his instruction by calling attention to what they should be hearing by what he is saying. So instead of going in and offering sacrifices in a mundane way, they should be reminded of of all that the temple was supposed to do. There were certain uh, kind of amazing symbolic features of the temple in the same way that many of the things that we have in our own church might allow us to look to God as we're participating in worship for each other. You know, if you've ever been to a really old church, maybe in England, you know that you walk in and there's something majestic that you're supposed to encounter. Because the the whole architecture of the building is made so that you would naturally look up to the sky. Because rightly, as this text says, that the Lord is in heaven and we are on earth. Or even if you're in the front of one of those cathedrals, you're looking back on all these stained glass windows. And they're normally made so that creation is blasting forth in the stained glass windows in the back. So that we are reminded as people that we are here on earth. And the Lord created all and is governing, governing over all things. I mean, even in this church, we, we do certain things on purpose to make sure that, that God is known to speak before we are supposed to speak. Maybe you noticed in coming in at 1045 when the service starts, and you're encouraged to come here at 1045 when the service starts. The first thing that happens is we read from the word. So Drew read from Psalm 8, so that God sets the standards, so that we're looking at him, or even how the pulpit is is the centerpiece of this room. It has its own platform, and from it, we're supposed to open the word of God and let the word speak to God's people. God is supposed to speak. That is the attention of how we're supposed to worship him. Ian Pravon said, a heart attentive to God multiplies neither toil nor words. 
But when we set our heart on what God is first saying, then we know that we're following someone who is true and holy and not someone who may be weak and not mighty. So we let the Lord speak. So Christian, just a question for you. Do you let the Lord set the agenda in your life? Do you expect to come in here and let the Lord set the agenda? Or at home, maybe when you have your own devotion with the Lord or maybe leading your family and family worship at the table, do you let God speak first? Maybe on our drive to work or when we're at work or maybe just at home by ourselves. We're letting you know, Netflix setting the agenda or a holy God setting the agenda. The writer tells us that we should listen carefully. He also tells us that we should not only listen carefully, but then he tells us that we should speak carefully. He says, be not rash with your mouth. So there's true danger in careless speech in worship. Fools are prone to just say things, you know, just talk and talk and talk. And when they're done talking, they just keep talking. We all, we all know people like that, right? Where they just kind of say things, right? We, we have talk radio like in our lives with other people where they just talk and talk and, and they don't even mean anything by it. And we should approach God not in the same way, but be careful when we speak to him because not only is he holy, but our words definitely matter. Our words teach us what we are to say about God. I mean, think of it. How many of us know the alphabet? A, B, C, D, and so on. How do you know the alphabet? Well, in part, you know it by singing songs to yourself and reminding yourself of, of what those next letters are, right? Or, or when we choose certain and specific songs that we worship with on a Sunday morning, you know, Drew and his team spends a lot of time picking the right songs for the right place so that when we worship God, it's not just by accident that we're singing holy, holy, holy. It's not just by accident that we're singing the specific words because we want to all collectively give our attention towards God. And those words matter. So we should speak carefully. We're reminded of when Jesus instructs his people, when they're asking him, how should we pray? He tells them in Matthew chapter six, verse seven, he says, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So in, in being people who are saturated with prayer, are our prayers just full of words that don't really matter? And if they are, we need to be way more careful than that because of who is speaking or who we're speaking to and who is hearing. The words that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the word that we lift up, are they God's words and for his purpose? One of my favorite preachers, maybe of all time, but certainly in recent time, uh, is one of my favorite preachers not because of his excellent sermons, though they're really good, and it's not because of his stature, though he's an important person. One of my favorite things about this preacher is that you, you can just physically tell that when he gets up to a pulpit, he feels and he knows that this is the most important time in all of Christendom. Like there could be tornadoes ripping apart cars outside, but he is preaching the word to his people. And I love that. It's, it's so fueling just to experience that where, where he knows and he's convinced that when God's word are spoken to God's people, that things really happen. I said that to Ryan a couple weeks ago, that this guy is one of my favorite preachers. And Ryan goes, well, I mean, I try to do that every week. And it's like, fine, you can be in my top five too, I guess. <laughs> but we know the difference when a preacher just gets up and says things versus getting up and honors the Lord with his lips. And so when we come to worship, we need to be careful when we speak. 
And we need to do this. He tells us the reason is because he is in heaven and we are on earth. We are speaking to not someone who is of us, but we are speaking to God on his throne, ruling and reigning the universe that he created. I mean, maybe you've been in a meeting at work or in some other organization where you are, you're scared to speak because the boss is in the room and you don't want him to know that you actually don't know what you're doing and that you have no idea if he knows that you don't know what you're doing. So you just remain pretty quiet. Or when you're called on, you make sure that you know exactly what you're saying and then it's true and right. Friends, we worship a God who is not just one of us. The Bible refers to him as a transcendent God, as one who is beyond not only our understanding, but he's not controlled by the things of our own world. He is in heaven, the greatest of all places, and he's in charge of that place. He is above or other than. He's distinct from all that he has made. He is God. I was talking with Drew about this text earlier this week, and, and he gave um, the illustration I don't know if he just made it up or if he got it, but it was excellent. And if you have all the attributes of God listed off and you're checking the boxes of who God is, you know, holy, majestic, faithful, his grace is unending, he is love. There's, there's one other box at the bottom that we far too often forget. He is other. He is not like us. He is not the people that he created. He is God and nothing can be like him. And this is so encouraging when we not only think about that on its own, but also think about that when we worship God and we're silent because he's speaking, it's because he's in heaven and we're on earth. Or when we're speaking to him, we should be careful of that because he's in heaven and we're on earth. And in some ways, if we look at this a whole, whole lot, we might feel unstable a little bit because I naturally want to be near God. I want to be in a safe place. I don't want to be in a fragile life. I don't want to be where I shouldn't be. And as Christians, we know that the Bible is very clear that in light of a holy, righteous, just, wrathful God in the midst of feeble people, it's actually Jesus who bridges the gap of that crevice in our lives. It's Jesus who makes himself the, the mediator between unholy people and an unholy God. For when Jesus in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he not only withholds God's wrath from God's people, but he absorbs God's wrath from God's people. So that when we look at God, we know that we are adopted. You know, we know that we belong to him because we know that when he looks at us, he looks at the, he looks at the works of his own son. He looks at us and he sees that we are on his son's side by giving ourselves over to his son. And so when we speak about God, we can do it with joy, not with fear. We can do it with excitement, not with unease, because we are speaking and hearing from someone who speaks to us and hears us. You know, part of God being a um, transcendent God doesn't mean that he's not a personal God at the same time. It's truly incredible. How many of you have ever been around a really important person and they talk to you? You know, the first time I talked to Brooke and she said, hi, I was like, oh, whoa. She said, she talked to me. And it's God who speaks to his own people and he listens to his own people. 
And this changes everything about us, not just in how we are seen by him or how he sees or how we see ourselves, but it changes our affections. It changes the way that we worship. When we come into a place of worship, it makes us want to be careful because this is an event. This is something that matters eternally. And when he speaks to us, we know that it's the Lord himself speaking to us. So we want to be careful when we listen. We want to be careful when we speak. And then third, under the first point, we want to vow carefully. We want to vow carefully. Ecclesiastes in verse 4 of chapter 5, it says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Now, a vow is, you know, something that we're all accustomed to. You know, you, you take a vow at a wedding. Or in many ways, you, you sign a vow when you rent an apartment or buy a house. You know, or maybe you have your own business and you kind of have this transactional vow that on Thursdays, I will come and take care of your yard because I know that you will pay me if I take care of your yard. And we're reminded of Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2, and it says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all the, that proceeds out of his mouth. The things that we take a vow of, whether it's in marriage or in business, you know, we, it's a terrible thing when those vows are broken. And, and such is the same when we vow things to God. Jesus also explains this and goes into this further when he said that you shouldn't make any vows like the Pharisees were saying that you could make a vow because the Pharisees were saying you could make a vow, but you didn't have to keep it if these circumstances happened. Or if you compare this vow to that vow, you can kind of choose the different vows that you make. And Jesus is saying, it's better for you not to make a vow at all. You know, make, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Christians are to be truthful people because we live under a true and living God. So he said for us, to, our yeses ought to be yeses and our noes ought to be noes. When I was a sophomore in high school, in the summer months, you know, it's hot in the summer and you're constantly exhausted and you're constantly dehydrated, even if you don't play sports. I remember playing baseball one summer and I constantly had cramps in my legs, whether it was hamstrings or whether it was my calves. It would happen in a game. It would happen at my house. One time it happened in Denny's and it's really embarrassing to just lay on the floor in Denny's and people are like, what is wrong with you? And you're like, I can't feel my calf and it hurts so bad. And I remember sitting in the dugout in the middle of a game. We probably had two or three innings left and I was pitching. I kept having calf cramps. And I remember sitting in the dugout and praying, God, if you help me finish this game, I will read a proverb every day this month. I mean, one, the absurdity of that. And two, who am I to make a deal with the Lord in that case? And then three, I honestly don't know if I read a proverb every day for the next month, but if I didn't, that's a dangerous, dangerous thing to play with the Lord. Our words ought to mean something because his whole work means something. And we do this maybe too often as Christians where someone may, might come up to us and, and tell us about something that's going on in their lives. And, and we might just flippantly say, "That's man, thank you for telling me that. I'll, I'll pray for you. And then we just go on and we, we never actually pray for them. Like we're breaking a vow and we're using the Lord's name in vain when we do it. Because we're supposed to be participating in this eternal hope of glory and march towards heaven together. And we just told them, I pray for you. And then we move on because the things that we want to do are more fulfilling. So the application here is to, is when we make a vow, we need to keep it because of what's at stake. God's glory is at stake when we say things about God. 
So we should listen carefully and speak carefully and vow carefully. And then fourth and lastly in this section, we should promise carefully. When we make promises to God, we should promise carefully because we don't want God to be angry at our words or destroy our work. It's an amazing thing of of what it looks like to promise things to God and then not actually coming through on our end of the bargain. You know, you might look around and you, you see deals that are being made all the time, or you might even see a situation where it looks like someone made a deal with the devil because of what they get for almost nothing, right? They, they, all of a sudden, this thing happens in their life. Do we kind of tongue-in-cheek say, man, they must have made a deal for the devil? Like, how did that guy wind up with that girl? Or how did they get that car? Like, something's not right. It's amazing when we think about that and we are reminded of actually when a deal was tried to be made from the devil to God. In Matthew chapter 4, in one of the most amazing uh, prideful passages of the scriptures, we actually have Satan showing up facing Jesus, the king of kings, and wanting to make deals with him. You know, and he made three of them, and, and Jesus was always batting them down, and in part because Satan was misusing scripture, and also in part like, Jesus isn't going to give Satan authority. Satan only wants to crush Jesus. But this last deal that Satan tried to make, and it's amazing where they're both on top of a mountain, the scripture says, and, and Satan is showing Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world. And he says, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all those things. And in part, you, you laugh because you go, bro, you don't, get, you don't own all those things. Like those are actually all of his. Like you come up to me and be like, Hey, if you, if you uh, do something, then I'll give you your jacket. It's like, I'm wearing a jacket. Like, I don't need my jacket. I have my jacket. And we see that and we think it's absurd, but how many times do we actually make deals or try to make deals with God in the same way? You know, if you let me retire on time, then I will give my life over to you as a full-time missionary. If you give me another kid then I will love my wife the way that I'm supposed to love my wife. If you just let my kid go to college, then I'll give attention to my spouse like they deserve. Or maybe if you give me that thing or if you allow this thing to pan out on my time, it's amazing how many times we ask God for our will to be done and how uncareful we are with promises that we make towards him. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 17 says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. The the driving force behind how careful we should be in worship ought to ring from the reality and and the truthfulness that we are to fear God. We are to revere God. We are to be in awe of God in such a way that that listening to him becomes no struggle to us because it's God speaking. Why would I not listen to him? It shouldn't be hard for us to, to speak to him according to his will and his way because we're talking to God. We're not just talking to our best friend that we can get away with something. Or when we make deals with him or make vows with him out of this fear, we can truly worship. God wants us to worship him with reverence and awe in part because he deserves it. And also because how do you not worship God when you look at his own character? When the reality of who he is overflows into your life, it becomes easy to see him rightly and we're to remark and change accordingly. Because life and all that is in it 
is needed for us to be satisfied in the Lord. We, we should have a constant attitude of, of humility before him in listening, in speaking, in promising. And even when we do this in a, in a worshipful way, like in a corporate worship setting, it's easy to actually do this in a celebratory fashion, in a, in a happy fashion, a, a, a place and a time of actual joy because of what God not only is, but what God is always doing for his people and what God did for his people in the person of Jesus. Like it, it becomes easy to actually listen to him and speak to him and live accordingly to him. So to fear God is to revere God. To stand in awe of God is to fear God. To approach God with reverence is an outflow of who God is. He's truly awesome, holy and majestic. So in the highs and lows of life, in the, in the, you know, in the ins and outs of the torture of what it feels like that these people are going through in Ecclesiastes, we should be careful. And we can enjoy God because of the carefulness of our hearts. The preacher is bringing the reader to a position of seeing the world as it is. And he's encouraging the reader to look up. In, in times of feeling like the world is uneasy or things are you know, totally futile or nothing really matters, that, that is not the time for the Christian just to throw his hands up and say, well, if it doesn't really matter, then what I do doesn't really matter. And if, if that doesn't matter, then how I worship God doesn't really matter. He actually says the opposite. Because he matters, because he is awesome and holy and majestic, our worship of him ought to reflect that. So in life, what are we to do now? First, we are to be careful and worship God with awe. Second, we're to be content. We're to be content and enjoy God's gifts from our lives. Now, just briefly to explain a little bit of structure from this passage, um, we're going from now chapter five, verse eight, all the way through chapter six, verse nine. And if you just read this plainly, you might get a little mixed up in the emotions and you go, wait, so the first paragraph, that seems bad. Second paragraph, that seems bad. Third paragraph, man, it gets really good there. That's where the sermon ought to start. Or that's where Ecclesiastes ought to just end. Everything's great. And then the next paragraph comes and that seems bad. And then another paragraph, ugh, more Ecclesiastes. And what that helps us do to do just structurally, it's almost like a like a bracket in March Madness where you have the top of the section and the bottom of the section reflecting each other and speaking of the same thing. And the next bracket over, as we go closer to the middle, they're saying the same thing in teaching in a parallel passage until finally we get to the point in verse 20. So I wanna walk you through some of the things that he's telling us to do. Now in the first section, the writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us that we should be careful when we approach God in worship. In the second section, he's, he's using wealth in order to show us that we can enjoy God, not because of the wealth, but because of who God is. So he's going to be using wealth and money and power again and again through this section. In the first one, verses 8 through 12, and then in chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, he's telling us, that by pursuing wealth, we will have no satisfaction. Or Christian, don't pursue wealth. You will be unsatisfied. Look at the text in verse eight. It says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter for the high official is watched by a higher. And there are yet higher ones over them, but this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. 
In verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase to eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And then in chapter 6 and verse 7, it says, All the toil of man for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes of the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. So in a couple of ways, he describes through several examples of why we should not pursue wealth in order to enjoy God. But in fact, we should do the opposite. We should enjoy God. So first, he says that the pursuit of wealth is pursuing power, and power is corruptive. So he gives this example in two verses of how the person would normally look around and see oppression all around him. And our desire might be, man, if I had more power or more wealth, then I could influence the world. And he says, power is corruptive. And, and even if you had a lot of money, or maybe you were in power, he says, every boss has a boss. Every king has a king. You know, even a president has a CEO. Even a CEO has a chairman. Even a chairman has like a trillion shareholders who all think they're the boss. So even in your pursuit of power, you're not actually going to impact what you want to impact. And other teachings of scripture would remind us that in doing something that only God can do, change people's lives, we are trying to act like God way too much. We should flee from that. And the reason of this is just a reminder that, that no one is actually in charge except for God. Now, he's not a total anarchist. He's not saying that bosses are bad. He said even fields need kings over them. But the pursuit of being a king of the field actually won't impact what we think it will. So we shouldn't pursue it. Secondly, in verse 10, he says, the pursuit of wealth is unsatisfying. He gives a proverb of the lover of money will never be satisfied with money nor the lover of wealth with gain because it attracts dependence or another way of saying it attracts bills. You know, more money, more problems is what they say. And I, I feel this from, from personal experience, not because I've been wealthy, but because I wanted to. You know, when I went to college, I was looking for classes called money and power and they don't offer them because if you had money and power, you wouldn't be teaching in college. So he says that the pursuit of wealth is ultimately unsatisfying because the goods increase and so do the dependents. And, and he says in a daunting way in verse 12, those who are seeking wealth with all of their lives, they don't sleep well. The rich cannot sleep and so their attempt is just vanity. There's a staggering and amazing quote by John Rockefeller who if you don't know who he is, just Google him later. At the time when he was alive, he was the, he was the richest man in the world and Many would say that he was the richest man in world history at that time. He was always increasing his treasure. He was always looking for things to buy and own and wealth. And even though he did a lot of great things, it's sad to look at what he said when someone asked him how much money is enough for his life. Like at what point when, he, when will he retire and get on one of his yachts and just enjoy? And he says hauntingly, just a little bit more is enough. It's amazing what money does to a soul. 
when we are pursuing, when the soul pursues money rather than the Lord. He thirdly says in this point that money leaves us unsatisfied or the pursuit of money leaves us unsatisfied. All the toil is for the mouth. The appetite is never satisfied or content. You know, sometimes Brooke will unhelpfully go out and buy a package of Oreos and eat an Oreo and go to bed. And then when Brooke wakes up, she finds that someone found those Oreos. You know, I'm laying, laying around at like 10 o'clock at night eating an Oreo and then like 10 more. And then it's like, I mean, it's just one sleeve of the Oreo package. And then pretty soon you're watching Netflix and it's like, I don't even know why I'm eating these, but I'm just eating them. Nothing ultimately satisfies us when it's of the world. When we, when we have this paradigm of God is in heaven and man is on earth, that leaves a crevice in the middle and we shouldn't trust things that are from that crevice. He says that it's better oftentimes to be a fool rather than wise or better to be poor rather than to be rich because the human appetite is futile. I was at a baseball game in Dallas this last Monday where Brooke and I went to a wedding in Tulsa and then friends who were in Dallas from Albuquerque said, hey, if you just make your way to Dallas, let's all go to the Texas Rangers game. And, and it just sounded awesome. So of course you're gonna do it. You're young, you don't have kids. I can go to Dallas, you know, let's do it on Monday. So we go there and it was spectacular. I haven't been to the ballpark in Arlington um, since 1994, it's first year, 24 years. And I get to see the Texas Rangers play my 27 time World Series champions, New York Yankees. Right, the judge is in the house, and of course he hits a home run. And I'm just basking in the glory of all the gifts of the world in this stadium. And I'm just walking around like the, I was there with the birds, and they didn't know where I was for an hour and a half because I'm just walking around looking at everything, going into the shop, and you know, eating things as I'm going. And then I finally realize, oh, I forgot when he asks, I'm supposed to pick up Ian a dilly dog, and then I'm going to pick up a hot dog for me. And I know what you're thinking: what is a dilly dog? A dilly dog made by humans is a hot dog inside of a pickle inside of a corn dog. <laughs> Gifts of the Lord. So I get, I get Ian a dilly dog and I'm like, well, I need to eat something too for the third time during the game. So I get a bacon wrapped hot dog as if a hot dog isn't good enough. It has bacon on top of it. It also has fire Cheetos sprinkled on top of it. I mean, the best $10 I've ever spent in my life. <laughs> And so I go back up to our seat and sit with them. So you're enjoying this game. You're around other friends. The weather is perfect. I'm eating this thing that shouldn't be created ever. And then I realize I forgot ketchup. And I got really sad. My night was ruined. I can't enjoy pig on pig on loaf of bread as intended. It's amazing how in the pursuit of happiness, we leave ourselves unsatisfied when we aren't pursuing the world. Our appetites are dangerous things. <laughs> I realize I just used a hot dog as an example, but a lot of more things are serious in our lives, right? Where we're pursuing money and excusing that, like, well, I'm caring for my family, but actually I'm, I'm caring for my own appetite. And the author's saying, don't do it. Second, he says that if you pursue wealth, you will not gain pleasure. There is no pleasure in pursuing wealth. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 13 starts with this. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. 
And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. And then down further in chapter 6, verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life, life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place, the writer asks. So we see a couple more examples of how in pursuing wealth we won't gain pleasure. In the first one, we have a, we have a case where a wealthy man loses all of his goods in a bad venture. You know, we see that often. Businesses fail even when they did nothing wrong. It just doesn't work out sometimes. And yet in the shame of this father, he is a son who he now has nothing to give to. And even the book of Proverbs says, this is something to be avoided. We're called to give a legacy to other people. And from the pursuit of wealth, this man has nothing. And he sits alone in darkness and eats in shame. No gain at the end. He was trying to serve two masters, but wound up not serving the one master who holds all things together. And he was pursuing a master without a soul, wealth, and it left him empty. Another case, you have a person who has a hundred kids. Now, Brooke and I don't have kids, but I think, I think having a hundred kids sounds kind of awesome. One, because people would be really sympathetic of you. And two, out of that lot, like there's surely going to be some of them who are awesome to just watch. You know, having a hundred kids sounds really cool. My sister three weeks ago gave birth to triplets. And uh, it was fun to go see them because, you know, triplets always come early and there are these tiny little creatures in this NICU unit. Um, and what was amazing is my, my sister and brother-in-law didn't know they were going to have triplets. They thought they were having twins until a third one just appeared. And you go, man, what? like what a blessing. That sounds so awesome. 500 miles away. That sounds really cool. <laughs> but we know from the scriptures that kids bring their parents delight. Grandkids especially. And how sad when after a hundred kids, you have no joy, none, nothing. Or another example of a man living for 2,000 years. 2,000 years, think of what you could experience in 2,000 years. In 2,000 years, we could probably go explore not only this world, but like other worlds. And in that pursuit, he has nothing but bitterness and a lack of joy. And the author says, it's better to not even make it through childbirth than to experience this. Which is really a haunting thing to read in the scriptures because of what we all experience, whether personally or through other people in our lives. Brooke and I are at the age where our friends are having kids or maybe they're trying to have kids or unfortunately for some of them, they lose kids. A couple of years ago, some of our really good friends were told that you know, four months that their kid would not make it through the childbirth. 
And then it made it through the childbirth, but passed away two months later. A couple of weeks ago, we were just told by a couple of friends that their kids, that their child won't make it through childbirth either. And in fact, it'll pass away in the womb. The oxygen supply will run out. The pain will increase. And that's just the child, not the family. The years and years of agony that will be lived out through that. And God says in his word that that is better than the pursuit of wealth. All of a sudden, this is no longer nice advice on CNBC, where someone who's rich is standing in front of a mansion and says, yeah, I've got a lot of things, but if I just spent like 20 more minutes with my family, it, it probably would have been the same and I would have been happy. He says, no, it is just as bad as death, except you get to experience the agony for the remainder of your life. Christian, do not pursue wealth, the scripture says. It's futile. It's like a vapor that you can't hold on to. Yeah, to some of the world, it might look like you've achieved everything, but deep down in, the restless nights, the empty bank account won't show forth, and when you die, you're just naked, just like you came in. What's the point? Except you have a whole lifetime of opportunity to actually pursue the one who actually gives you purpose, actually leaves you satisfied, actually gives you pleasure. If you're not a Christian here today, you need to realize that that there are things that Christians encounter. Some of us have money, some of us don't. Some of us live in homes, some of us live in apartments, but our satisfaction is not in any of those things, but is in Christ who actually saved us and redeemed us. And I'm willing to bet that all the money in my pockets, to quote the West Wing, and all the money in your pockets you have this sense of fear that what you're doing will not add up. And let me just encourage you, you're exactly right. What you are taking pleasure in will not add up at the end of days. You must take pleasure in the Lord. You must see God for who he is. And to see God for who he is, you would rightly see God as good and merciful and majestic and kind, and, and though he is very far off in other, he, uh, in other places and in heaven, ruling and reigning, he's also very personal to his people. He, he is the shepherd who goes after the lost sheep. He is the person who, without a doubt, cares for his people. It's like he has a grip that it is impossible for him to let go of. You know, one of the reasons why Jonathan Edwards and like one of the weirdest parts about Jonathan Edwards is that he likes studying spiders. Like what a weird hobby. All of us avoid it, but he liked looking at them is because the the spider has the tenacity to hold on to what he believes is his. And friend, if you are holding on to something that will leave you nor survive you when you pass away, friend, pursue the one who when he grips onto his own, he never lets them go. And don't you want to be with that person in heaven and not on earth? So you will not find satisfaction in pursuing wealth. You will not find satisfaction in pursuing wealth, nor will you find pleasure. But ultimately, our passage shows us in what we can pursue and what it does look like. Look at chapter 5, verse 18, where the Lord says to us in his word, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice 
in his toil, this is the gift of God. And down just one verse further in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, the author says, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing, and all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. So the author gives us what, again, is good and bad and how we're to look at what is good A wealthy man who lacks nothing but is not allowed to enjoy his wealth is a sad, sad thing. I realized yesterday that 10 years ago this weekend, I was living in Anchorage, Alaska, working for ConocoPhillips, and and it was one of the best summers of my life. And and I remembered actually, in, in pure sadness, like I actually didn't enjoy it that much. Because while being in Alaska, like if you ever want to, you know, get a, get a, better glimpse of of God's glory, like go up there. But I remember just thinking, I was so consumed with money and corporate pursuit that I wasn't able to look around at the friends that I was able to make there and the experiences that I was able to have. Now it's just pictures. And even though I posted one of them and said like, man, it, it turned out to be a great summer, I just remember thinking, I was so consumed with myself and not consumed with the gifts that God had given me. What's good, he says, is to eat and drink and to find enjoyment in the toil of our lives. This is our lot, he says. God gives wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them. The writer here gives us a balanced look or a godly view of contentment. Just as he has been honest about the the vanity of prosperity, he also wants the truth for us to experience in finding the joy in the everyday things of life, such as working and eating and drinking. This is a reoccurring thing in Ecclesiastes. These are referred to as uh, the joy or the enjoyment passages. They appear throughout the book and the preacher knows that joy is real because he's experienced it for himself. And yet in our time, even though our life is short, the book says, we get to experience what God has given us, his own people. And the real contentment that we have and the real thing that we get to experience and enjoy is is the joy that God has placed in our own hearts. And this is the tip of the spear in the structure of this text here in verse 20 where all these things are moving slowly towards what this has to say. And it says, for he will not remember, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. The people here are encouraged to not fret over the days of their past because of the reoccurring new mercies that God has filled our hearts with when we give God our attention. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So the big application here for our lives is to enjoy the moment. When what's being offered is is a drink and something to eat, we we should take it in and enjoy it. The preacher teaches us to depend on God for our joy. The object of our affection shows itself whether it's the pleasure of wealth or the worship of ourselves or if the object of our affection is actually the giver of all the things that he gives us and the one who is only rightly to be worshipped. 
So if the object of our worship is anything other than God, we're in a, we're in a very, very uncareful place. And if the object of our worship is in the things that we've been given rather than the giver of the gifts, then we are in a scary, scary place. And the Bible is full of things that we can rejoice in and sing praises for and and remind ourselves of of how good and gracious God is to us. I I wonder how often you do that. Can you just sit down in a psalm and be reminded of, of how good and kind God is? Yeah, other people might look at you and go, man, but you have a, you have a really hard life or you have a lot of circumstances going on and you just respond, yeah, but I don't much remember the days of my life because God keeps me occupied with the joy of my heart. The contentment that we're supposed to have is something easy when we're looking at the one who ultimately gives us that contentment in the person of Christ. God wants us to not just pursue anything, but he wants us exclusively to pursue the satisfaction and pleasure that can only be found in him as the giving God. So the the book that we are encountering week after week in Ecclesiastes has, has this meta theme going on that we're supposed to fear God and keep his commandments. And when we're careful, it makes it easier to fear God appropriately. And when we're content in all that God has done for us, it makes it a little bit easier to keep his commandments. Friend, I know that you might come here down, distraught, frustrated even at the life that you've been dealt, but I want to encourage you to trust the pursuit of this text, to enjoy God's gifts and to revere him as awesome and holy. And if you need a reminder of all that God has given you, let me, let me close and in conclusion, read from you all the things that we can be joyful of. We're reminded of God's glory and grace in the book of Romans chapter five, where it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our own sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then in verse 11, it continues, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Don't forget that God is in heaven and you are on earth. And we are not to trust in the crevice between that gap, but because of who Christ is for us, we get to trust in a fountain that overflows in love for his people. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you again this morning and are reminded of your glory and your grace and your love for your people. And Lord, we confess to you that it is too often in our own lives that we do not keep you as the vision of our heart's desires. And so we pray as people in thankfulness by you showing us ourselves through this text, showing us that we are not as careful as we need to be, showing us that we are not as content as we must be because of who you are. But we pray that you would, by your spirit, lift us up and to see Christ in his glory for who he is and has been and always will be. Father, we pray these things in the name and in the power of Jesus. Amen.